I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We're born with these unconscious habits, right, to protect ourselves. Um, so, for example, there is this instinctual survival brain that we have that can differentiate between, let's say, a wild animal and a cute little puppy, right? That can differentiate between that. So we're really kind of wired for that. However, we are not wired to think that, you know, somehow, you know, rich people are more worthy and, you know, poor people are lazy, or, you know, somehow men are better than women or dark-skinned people are, you know, less beautiful than, you know, light-skinned people. Those habits towards different types of human beings, those are learned. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce the Meta Hour. And we're continuing today with another episode of the Real Life series. Today, Sharon is in conversation with Anu Gupta. And this recording is part of the Living an Authentic Life Summit that took place a few months ago, all of which was centered around the themes from Sharon's new book, Real Life. This particular episode was exploring the times in life that we become contracted, and not just contracted for a short time, but more chronically contracted, and what is lost from our lives when we're in that kind of a state for a longer period of time, and also how we find our way back to a more connected and open way of being. So this is the second time we've had Anu on the podcast, and I'll tell you a little more about him. He's a human rights lawyer, a social scientist, an educator. He is the founder of Be More with Anu. He is a queer immigrant man of color who has lived through a lot of experiences of bias and bullying. He's someone who's really dedicated to finding solutions to bias. Um, he spent two decades doing research, field work in a lot of diverse communities globally. And he's also a deep meditation practitioner. And as these conversations often are, this is quite a, a personal one, a tender one. And in the exploration of contraction, Anu and Sharon speak a lot about unconscious bias, 
shame, and some of the ways that we stay trapped in our trauma, and also the ways that meditation and mindfulness can help us to navigate these waters, how we can unwind from the pain of racial trauma and moving towards the advancement of racial equity. So before we dive into the episode, a quick announcement. If you would like to get yourself a copy of Sharon's new book, Real Life, it's now available in all the places. And if you're someone who's a fan of audio, as a fan of this podcast, you might appreciate listening to the audiobook of Real Life, which is read by Sharon herself. And there's something more of a transmission, I feel, when you get to hear the author's words in the author's voice. So without further ado, let's get to today's episode, Anu Gupta and Sharon Salzberg. So welcome back to the summit. I'm Sharon Salzberg. And I'm so happy to be welcoming my friend Anu Gupta for a conversation about what contracts us, what holds us back, what limits us, and how we can get beyond that. To begin with, though, Anu's a human rights lawyer. He's a social scientist, an educator, and the founder of Be More with Anu. He's actually my go-to person when I'm writing a book because <laughs> when I want a quotation or, or just an inspiration about a world where people care about one another and it's beautifully expressed and um, we struggle, but we, we work through it. And uh, I go to Anu and get a beautiful story of some kind or another. He is also a gay immigrant man of color with lived experiences of bias and bullying that almost led him to take his life, but he didn't. Instead, he dedicated himself to find solutions to bias through two decades of original research fieldwork with diverse communities globally, and 10,000 hours of meditation practice. That's the magic number. <laughs> Peer-reviewed author and the principal investigator behind B. Moore's research. He secured highly competitive grants from institutions like the National Science Foundation, New York State Health Foundation, American Heart Association, among others, to validate B. Moore's science-backed method. He's written and spoken extensively, including on the TED stage, The Oprah Conversation, which I, I watched. It was fantastic. Fast Company and Newsweek. So welcome. Thank you so much for, for appearing here. Thank you so much, Sharon. It's such an honor to be here. And thank you for those kind words. You know, you're such a big part of my journey. So it's always thank you. such a joy to be a you know, part of programs that you host. Thank you. So you are an interesting combination of, of vocations and Indeed. Other things we say, you're an attorney, a research scientist, a teacher, a mindfulness and yoga teacher. So what led you to the work you've been called to do? Yeah, I feel like it's such a, sometimes I step back and look at my life and I am also very surprised by the path that I've taken because it's incredibly circuitous and not at all planned. And, you know, to answer your question on how I came to be doing what I'm doing, I would just say a lot of suffering, you know, as is the cause for a lot of people, you know, lots of suffering that was in the form of inner suffering, you know, vicarious suffering, intergenerational suffering, possibly ancestral suffering, you name it, right? So I think for me, uh, suffering is really what brought me to the path. You know, I ever since I was young, you know, I just loved this idea of fairness and equity and I grew up in India for the first 10 years of my life, and it's a very patriarchal culture. I mean, things are changing, of course, and have changed tremendously, but it's still deeply rooted in um, a gender, you know, binary and a gender caste system. So witnessing a lot of the people I loved, my mother, my grandmother, and all females, it was already kind of planted in me that, oh, there's this thing known as injustice and inequity. and there's this entitlement that comes with people's identities. And I think for me, then immigrating to the U.S. and experiencing it, you know, firsthand as an immigrant, as, you know, a person of color, as a gay person, 
for no other reason than just being um, kind of really picked my curiosity around like, why are we doing this to each other? What's going on with us human beings that, you know, wherever we go, we find some reason to, you know, one up one another and, you know, beat on each other where, you know, there's so many other paths for us to really uh, be with one another, to truly unleash one another's full potential. Um, and also like live in a way that's more heart centered and feels more connected. So that's, a short answer. <laughs> That's great. So, you know, we talk about suffering. We talk about what limits us and what holds us back. Certainly living in the, in the idea of, of each other, as you've said, where we don't really see each other would be major cause of such suffering and inhibition. Mm -hmm. So we see the idea of each other. That's our unconscious bias at work. So how do we only see the idea of each other and how does it Cause so much suffering. Yeah, I mean, you're the Buddhist teacher, so you know this so well. You know, when you think about um, Buddhist psychology, you know, this idea of you know these sankharas, these mental concepts, these mental formations that we have. And for most of my childhood, as I was growing up in the U.S., you know, I stayed in the U.S. after immigrating here, and just kind of quietly suffered and kind of was really led by my head and rationale and trying to reason out and use logic for every aspect of um, injustices I experienced or I saw in the world around me. And I remember in 2004 when I went back to India for the first time and I was really lucky to have traveled across the region of Ladakh, which is uh, very Buddhist. Um, and not only did I travel, I, you know, because of um, Somehow my uncle was like, hey, do you want to just go to all these really remote monasteries? And, you know, I know a bunch of people that can just take you around. And, you know, at the age of 18, just being there, being in the stillness of these monasteries that are really, you know, I think protruding out of mountains. I don't know how we got there and how these incredible drivers took us to these places. And really feeling that stillness of a lot of the people that were living there who have experienced a lot of harm, you know, Tibetans fleeing persecution. Um, again, another mental concept, right, around political ideology and ethnicity, and yet they're thriving. And that's where this idea of loving kindness was where it was first planted, but it didn't really germinate. I didn't think very much of it. And I did, though, start, start to meditate after that you know, as a consistent practice to really, but really in a way to improve myself, like improve my performance and, you know, kind of become this, um, kind of get on this achievement ladder to succeed um, as it was socially defined. And I think for me, this idea of not seeing myself for who I was really came to head when, as you shared, um, and I almost attempted my life. I was on the ledge of my 18th row window about to jump off. And, you know, in that moment for the first time, I saw that all of these ideas, these concepts, um, these memories that were torturing me were just thoughts. Now, easy said than done. But I think in that moment of clarity before you're doing something, before you're about to do something that's like unconscionable, unthinkable, I think the mindfulness practice that had been, <laughs> that, that had been a part of me for, you yeah. know, several years prior really came to a head and it was like, wait, these are just ideas. They're not who I am. But I listened to these ideas and I believed these ideas to the extent that I was about to commit what's one of the most horrific acts I could commit to myself. And that's where I began to see that, oh, this is what's happening in our society. You know, I was, at the time I was in law school and, you know, for me, it was a really difficult place to be because even though I went to law school, a lot of other people go to law school to, you know, really enact justice to create a better society, a more just and an equal society to, and yet we're not really trained to do that. What we're really trained to do is how can we use the existing systems to enable that? It's very like nitty gritties, you know, very much in our heads, but not to question why are things the way they are. 
what was the rationale for a country like the United States or South Africa to create an apartheid, to separate human beings for no other reason than their skin color? How could the Nazis justify, you know, legally justify the Holocaust of, you know, Jewish people, the Roma people and others? And this is all mandated by law. And this is where I feel like for me, bias really came to head. It was like, wow, these are these ideas, these mental concepts that people are believing. And now we live in a society where it's no longer conscious. It is conscious for many people, but for the vast majority of us, it's not. We have anti-discrimination policies on the books. We have anti-harassment policies on the books. And yet we have Me Too. Right? And yet we have a movement for Black lives and we see how you know, systematic torture of Black people takes place you know, across our country. And what's going on there? And not only that, it's sometimes Black people doing that to other Black people. What's going on there? And this is the nature of unconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Which for me is conscious bias is really learned habits, sorry, learned beliefs. So we've learned these false beliefs about one another, better than, worse than. For me, I saw that growing up around women in India, for sure. But unconscious biases are really these learned habits of thoughts. And that's, it makes us contract towards ourselves, as well as towards one another. Um, and for me, you know, I think one of the biggest examples that I can think of around this is it took me a very long time to come out. You know, I'm a gay person um, and I was aware of that, right? I was aware that I was gay, but I couldn't accept myself for that. So I wasn't, I was denying this part of who I am for most of my life. And it's, that's really interesting. If I can't do that for myself, if I can't see and accept myself for who I am, you know, how can I do that for others? So it really kind of becomes, the, the personal becomes a political, the political becomes a personal, and it's all so interdependent and interconnected. And for me, it really starts in the mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. You and the Buddha both, <laughs> you'd agree. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> really? Which is why I, so. that's, which is why I've taken, I've been on so many retreats with you and many others. Uh, because that's what I wanted to learn. It was like, wow, how did I get trained in this? <laughs> how do I untrain myself? Well, it's fascinating because, you know, on some level, I think it, it's a little bit simple and on other levels, it's so complex. Like I've often just uh, wondered, like, how, how have we come to evolve so that it's so difficult to believe that actions have consequences? You know, that we do something or we say something and we think it just disappears. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in many ways. It doesn't matter because it's not enough to, you know, elicit immediate change. Or it doesn't matter because who cares if I hurt somebody or, you know, and that's really bizarre, you know, because actions do have consequences. And the other thing we're not trained for, another thing we're not trained for, is looking for causes and conditions. You know, looking more deeply into systems, for example. So that our good-heartedness is more than just a single act of helping someone get a meal or, you know, a place to sleep for the night, which is all important. But yeah. we look more deeply. We're not necessarily trained for that either. Yeah. You know, so we don't maybe grow up, most of us, you know, grow, don't grow up in a way so that we have a lens on really seeing ourselves clearly, seeing others clearly, seeing the nature of connection clearly or seeing systems clearly exactly so everything is really gonna change if we can pay more attention and be more aware absolutely and i think for me that day in 2009 that's where my journey really began and it began with this beautiful thing that you just shared you know what i was experiencing was a consequence it was a result and what i wanted to understand were the causes and the conditions that led me to that ledge. And the, the deeper I got, the deeper I saw that, oh my gosh, I'm not alone. This whole time, this is this other fabrication that I had in my mind that I was the only person, you know, woe is me. And then the more I talked to other folks and the more I learned about other people's stories, I was like, oh my gosh, we're all suffering in this human soup together with, for this, because of the same causes and the same conditions. Yeah. <laughs> 
It's really true. You know, you've said that we're not born with our ideas of other people, our prejudices, all the ideas that lead to all the isms, but we are born with unconscious bias. Can you talk a little bit about the neuroscience of that and why our brains work the way they do around bias? Yeah. So it's interesting, right? So we're born with these unconscious habits, right, to protect ourselves. Um, So, for example, there is this instinctual survival brain that we have that can differentiate between, let's say, a wild animal and a cute little puppy, right? That can differentiate between that. So we're really kind of wired for that. However, we are not wired to think that, you know, somehow, you know, rich people are more worthy and, you know, poor people are lazy or, you know, somehow men are better than women or dark skinned people are, you know, less beautiful than, you know, light skinned people. Those habits towards different types of human beings, those are learned. And for me, you know, that's the beauty of this work around breaking bias because the vast majority of biases that we experience, I mean, my work is very much in the workplaces. So thinking about working with doctors, we're seeing patients or lawyers that are serving clients, teachers in their classrooms. You know, I don't think that there are many teachers that wake up in the morning being like, today I'm going to be the worst teacher in the world and as biased as possible, or a doctor or a nurse going to the hospital being like, I'm going to be as biased as possible today. You know, that's not the intention with which most people go into these noble professions. And yet unconscious bias is really what's getting in the way. And for them, it's not that they were born to think that somehow, you know, Black people can withstand more pain than lighter skinned people. Those mental habits have been learned over time. That's because of those causes and conditions. And the good news for me has been, you know, through this quest of research and others, like, hey, just as these things have been learned, we can unlearn them. You know, there is this thing known as neuroplasticity um, and our ability to really rewire our brain. And I feel like what better example than myself? <laughs> you know, I'm like, wow, like sometimes I think about myself 15 years ago, I was a really angry, not a nice person. <laughs> like, I wouldn't want to hang out with Sharon Salzberg because I'd be like, oh, she's too much of a hippie for me. Or this judgmental mind would be all over the map. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, that's kind of the power of transformation that's possible in our, in our minds. And and I think this is what gives us hope, right? These unconscious biases in particular, while we have them to protect us, we can totally transform them. Yeah. Yeah, there's something um, so delicate about facing one's own suffering because mm-hmm. uh, it can clearly, like in your case, be the vehicle for transformation, you know, mm-hmm. or it can be uh, like quicksand. You know, and just like pull us in and we don't, it defines us. We don't get even a glimpse of a a bigger context or a bigger world, which can contain it or our own inner strengths, which actually can respond differently. Uh, And yet, you know, not being aware of our own suffering means we're, we're just lost in space, you know, and we don't necessarily have the building blocks for empathy or, or compassion for others. And, so there's something so important about being able to be in touch with our own pain. And, and part of it, I think, is seeing pain as pain. You know, like if you were seeing your anger, as you described it, um, or fear, you know, say in my case, it would be more predominantly fear. Uh, it's so easy to disparage yourself and feel like you're weak or you're bad or you're not meeting expectations or something instead of kind of just holding it and saying, this is a really painful state. Now what am I going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, and this is something I've learned from you because, you know, I I remember going on retreats with you, the Metro retreats, the forgiveness retreats, and, you know, the quicksand, the quicksand of our own suffering, that tunnel vision, that's where I was for the first couple of years once I started really deeply committing myself to a mindfulness practice. And yet, what took me out of the quicksand is the other half of the path. You know, mindfulness is just half, of the, if, if that, right? The other half that's just as important, if not more important, is kindness. It's loving kindness. It's compassion. It's these pro-social behaviors, you know, these heart practices that really, you know, enable 
the mind to remain sharp and then shift that energy um, to kind of be able to relate to others, to feel more connected to others and get out of this, basically it's delusion that we're all alone. You know, like everything about even the fact that we're connecting right now is interdependent on so many causes and conditions, uh, you know, from the tech people that built the technology to the people that enable that technology and brought it to us so we can communicate in this way and folks can listen to this talk. So yeah, it just feels like kindness really brings all of that really together. Well, it seems like such a, an important healing force as we see everything, you know, within ourselves and there is everything within ourselves Yeah, you know, from the most glorious, sublime, States yeah. to the most kind of thorny, difficult states. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And believe me, I've been, <laughs> I've seen a lot of those. Yeah, there are many of them. <laughs> and so has, so has probably everyone. Yeah. Right? This is part of being in our human bodies and hearts and minds. You know? Yeah. So there's something ennobling also. I think when we realize it's not that the suffering itself is the point by any means, but, um, we can metabolize it in a certain way. And mm -hmm. it's, it's toward the end of, of greater compassion for ourselves as, as yeah. well as for others. And it's, it's really important. I agree. Totally yeah. agree. So uh, you also referred earlier to what is one of the most contracting elements of all, which is a sense of isolation. It's just mm -hmm. me. No one else goes through anything yeah. like this. It's just me. Mm -hmm. I also want to make a point that um, comes up a lot, you know, uh, in teaching meditation, which is people fearing that if they were to focus on like inner resource and inner strength to uh, meet things differently, to be kinder, that that would mean not trying to do anything about changing external conditions that mm -hmm. all and end all of our efforts. And so, that's partly what makes people kind of squirm like, ah, yeah. you know, then you're going to allow this just to go on and on and on and not at least try to make a difference. And it's not that way at all. I agree. No, I absolutely agree. And I feel like that's actually a state of delusion to think that anything and everything is static, that each one of us are permanent, that we don't evolve, that we don't change. And for me, that's been my biggest learning. You know, some of the most cruel people that I have experienced, you know, at least in my life, are also possible. They, they can change and they have changed, right? So that possibility of transformation is there for each and every single one of us. And holding that possibility is what's difficult because then we have to be in the, in the gray, in the complexity of what it means to be human, to, you know, give grace to one another to good grace to ourselves, you know, like there's so much shame, so much perfectionism that, you know, we've also, it's been conditioned in us, right? We aren't trained in kindness and compassion in our schools. Rather, we're trained to compete. We're trained to be better than others, right? So that comparing mind is, you know, really this is against the stream for us to do these practices of meditation and mindfulness and compassion. And when we get used to them, when we're actually, I mean, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself, you know, when I'm sitting on the cushion and just practicing and in the practice of it, in the habits of it, I realize that that is the fodder that's needed for transformation because that's the fuel that allows me to see things where they are unskillful, unwholesome, incorrect, false. And to then respond to it in a way that would enable other people to join and see that versus be reactive. Because what I've seen, particularly in the field that I work in, which is it's become, you know, it's human rights. That's how I started the work. Now it's uh, called DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion. Within that, I work in the space of breaking bias. And there's a lot of shame. There's so much shame. You know, shame of being wrong, doing wrong, and shaming one another. And for me, as someone who kind of studies human behavior and how do we create behavior change, shame is incredibly afflictive yeah. because it contracts us and we want to run away. Yeah. <laughs> we don't yeah. want to feel that. Yeah. 
So. No, definitely. Um, I'm so glad you brought up shame because it took me a while to understand the vocabulary of kind of current Western psychological thinking and the Buddhist psychology, as you know so well. The distinction is sometimes made between remorse and guilt. Remorse being a painful state, no doubt, yes. but something that's kind of onward leading. You know, we see things in another light. We yeah. understand we hurt somebody or said that thing, whatever it is, because we were overcome. You know, we mm -hmm. had no no perspective on what we were feeling. We didn't yeah. see a thought as just a thought. You know, yeah. it was dominating us or we were afraid or something like that. And we feel the pain of having done that, of having broken harmony in some way. But we, in essence, can forgive ourselves, remember change is possible, <laughs> determined to go on to the best of our ability, not to just to do it again and again, maybe make amends or whatever, you know, yeah. but it, it is onward leading, whereas guilt is just a kind of lacerating self-hatred where we just go over and over and over and over the thing we did or the thing we said or didn't say or do. And uh, and we, we don't have that kind of bigger perspective. We're just stuck. And it's not onward leading. It's just exhausting and devastating. And so it's not skillful or, or helpful. And so then when I was um, reading more about shame in, in Western contexts, they use words that are very different. So guilt yeah. is a good thing. In that it's, you know, kind of recognizing an act or yeah. uh, refraining from acting was harmful. So it's very specific. It's pointed toward a thing, you know, mm -hmm. of verbal or, or physical action. And um, it has those same elements of like, oh, right. lessons learned, you know, let me go on and try to be different. And shame is a more global condemnation instead of I did wrong it's like i am wrong i am bad you know like exactly and very much without that sense you were talking about that spark of possibility and so i got more into that vocabulary and trying to understand <laughs> it in that way but it's the same dynamic it's that we feel pain when we recollect these things there's a way of yeah. feeling the pain that's actually kind of helpful and there's a way of feeling the pain that's just stuck mm -hmm. and shame maybe more than anything keeps us from being able to move on and I feel like that is something we experience at an individual level, you know, the shame, but also within our families, within our communities, within our workplaces and the societies we're living in. We're really living, you know, there's an Irish proverb, you know, that says, you know, the thing about the past is that it's not the past, you know, because it's still living. We're so identified with it. We can't let it go. And that's what shame does. And for me, that was kind of the big aha moment you know, from all the research that I've done, particularly around this work, is that it is shame. The, the, the nature with which we're doing the work, the energy with which we're doing the work, we're really hitting people on the head, making them feel bad about who they fundamentally are because of their race, because of their identity, of whatever form, gender, sexual orientation, ability, you name it. And that is not skillful. Because every human being feels this thing known as shame, and it's really gross. It's not something that's pleasant, and it's actually something we don't want to touch. And this makes us run away. It mm -hmm. gets our fences up, and it prevents us from actually shifting and changing our behavior. And the more I think about Dr. King, for example, one of the things he had said before he was sadly assassinated was that you know our goal is to build a beloved community, and that's going to require qualitative shifts in our hearts and quantitative shifts in our lives. So he's basically speaking about that, right? He's not speaking about, um, you know, changing, you know, the intricacies of policies that's necessary because we have done that. But it's about those qualitative and quantitative shifts within our hearts and our lives, how we see ourselves and one another. And for me, that's where the possibilities really lie in this century of transformation and true healing and this this dynamic of you know shame and guilt you know i've spent so much time in it too but um i really like the word remorse more than guilt um there's this beautiful author who i love and she's kind of a proponent of forgiveness and I think she's in her mid 90s now she's one of the only survivors of the holocaust who's left dr edith Feger, incredible um and she speaks about remorse 
she's and she speaks about forgiveness because what remorse lets us do western psychology would call it guilt is to acknowledge that i have done something wrong and i want to make amends so i can forgive but in order to make amends i have to first forgive myself that i did something wrong acknowledge that i did something wrong and then ask for forgiveness and if i don't get it that's okay because i've already forgiven myself and i'm asking for forgiveness because it's not forgiveness is not something that i can give from another person to myself but it's something i can do so i feel like that's really ennobling and i feel that's the type of transformation that i'd like to see um in our world and hopefully i will in my living like that you're young enough <laughs> let's see this is what i wrote in uh, real life about this shame yes, keeps us from being honest but interconnectedness and belonging combat shame we can yeah. connect to this by recognizing our own shame and sharing it shame grows in secrecy so owning our story and recognizing our humanness can be healing mm. i so, might have learned it from you because <laughs> i read the book who knows it's all you know so interconnectedness is an interesting word in this context and and the idea of sharing of just being open and the kind of collective help and healing we can give for one another in hearing it you know and and being present throughout it and not kind of crumbling like oh really <laughs> it's disgusting you know it's it's it is an act of loving kindness and when you speak about mm. dr king and the and the beloved community it's interesting because um so many times people, if I quote him in some way along those lines, and people will say to me, yeah, but look what happened to him. You know, he got assassinated as though there were cause and effect there, mm. you know, which I find really interesting as though it, our belief is that if, if Dr. King were hateful and vengeful, yeah. that he would have been safe. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? And the other interesting thing there is that, you know, we have such an interesting relationship with death and mortality. As if like, you know, and you know, this is maybe a Buddhist in me or <laughs> uh, because part of the journey for me, you know, coming as someone who was so close to death is not to be scared of it, but actually be so grateful for every day that I'm living, you know, because who knows what's going to happen. You know, we are just coming out of a pandemic and so many of us, um, including myself, have lost close family members and mm -hmm. friends. and. Mm -hmm. Um, so I feel like that it just kind of reminds us that, oh, there's like a bigger world out there of priorities and why live in contraction, you know, if that could come at any, can knock our door any, any day, you know? Yeah. So you've developed training and worked with companies and individuals to equip them with the tools to see their own unconscious bias and to meet it with mindfulness. and. I'm wondering about if you could talk some about that work and yeah. um, what makes you feel in the end that um, it's been a worthwhile or meaningful interaction. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing I'll say is that the work that I've been doing the last 10 years is really kind of it's what I call the work of really liberating us and our minds from these mental concepts, these stereotypes. Um, and to really bring people together. So based on the science, you know, I never expected that I would create a toolkit. It's called a PRISM toolkit. I was pursuing uh, my study of um, mindfulness, of compassion for personal healing reasons completely. And I was doing, you know, social justice lawyering. I was working on issues of racial equity and gender equity, more from a legal side. But, you know, about 10 years ago, I started seeing that the neuroscience is really clear that these tools that I was practicing for my personal healing are actually supporting people measurably reduce bias, unconscious bias, as well as conscious bias. You know, what these tools are really helping people come together, build more social trust, you know, improve communication, improve empathy across, you know, what they call intergroup relations. So I was like, well, there's something here. Okay, so now that these scientists have done these experiments, have demonstrated this, um, 
why isn't this something that we're bringing to the masses? So I was very naive 10 years ago, and I literally wrote to the scientists and got on a call. They were all super kind, you know, the inventors of the implicit association test and many, many others. And I was like, well, you've done this. And this paper was written in 2003 and 2007, like this, this 2013. Why don't we have this in the world? It's like, oh, we're scientists. Like we identify and discover things. If you want to do something about it, you do it, right? Because they've moved on. Um, of course, they talk about their research and academic conferences to make make sure that these topics stay relevant. And that's where I was like, oh, wow. So there is an opportunity to now really bring this to the masses. So for me, that's where I designed the PRISM Toolkit, which is really five tools that have each shown to address bias. Um, PRISM stands for perspective taking, pro-social behavior, individuation, stereotype replacement, and mindfulness. And my work has really been now using meditation as the vehicle to bring these PRISM tools to companies and complementing these meditation tools, the PRISM toolkit with education. So where does bias come from? What are these stereotypes? How do we learn them? You know, and you'd be surprised, Sharon, how many people, like I don't want to just say doctors, but it could be everyone with multiple graduate degrees who haven't been taught like some of the basic things about our human identity, right? So many of them believe that race is biological, you know, and just really silly things. Many of them don't know that, oh, it was just a fabrication that was, that some people came up with like less than 200 years ago, 250 years ago. You know, some dude who loved to collect skulls of human beings who around the world um, had a superiority complex, you know, one could imagine, created the story and then infected the human consciousness. And we are still living that story. Of course, that story has huge consequences, right? But that is a cause. And the people that believe that cause are now conditioning themselves and others around the superiority and inferiority. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was liberating. And that's the work. It's really about educating and truly training, training not in a lecture style, but hey, let me hold your hand and let me actually train you like you've done for me, for example. Let's practice metta. Let's actually learn how to cultivate this feeling of loving kindness. Okay, mind is going to resist. Okay, let's do that. But, so and that's kind of where I feel we're really headed. And I feel inspired by, you know, a lot of social movements of the past. You know, I think about the civil rights movement in the United States, for example, and even the Indian independence struggle, that's what our ancestors were doing. They were training the nervous system. Yeah. You know, when they were doing sit-ins, it's not just a bunch of people got in and were going to do a sit-in. They had to train their nervous system <laughs> to like face some pretty awful things. And, and for me, this in our century, of course, the external oppression is there and there is the oppression of our minds and our day-to-day relationships. And this is where these tools can quite useful so you know in that formulation is it seems that mindfulness is of some kind it doesn't have to be through meditation but but a real grounding in mindfulness is key to the work of advancing racial equity because otherwise we won't see our tendency to other eyes or you know deny belonging or or whatever it might be yeah Absolutely. You know, and it's because for me, and you know, even it's prism, it really is backwards. Mindfulness is really the bedrock, the foundation, because it's not just the noticing of thoughts or these mental ideas, but also all accompanying experiences that we have in our bodies, you know, from our emotions to the memories to bodily sensations. And again, we're really, you know, training people and becoming more aware, becoming more conscious, right? making the unconscious conscious and then really investigating but what is this why am i believing these thoughts and then really letting go of the unskillful and what i've found like in terms of the benefits of this is not just equity we're not just advancing equity we're really advancing well-being because yeah. the more you know you know i guess 
you know, luggage that we're just carrying around, you know, that's just burdening us. The more we get rid of it, the freer we feel, the more life lighthearted we feel. And that has a direct correlation with also some of the more practical concerns that individuals and organizations have around costs, you know, around improvement, performance and productivity and collaboration and creativity, all the things, right? So, but it does require effort. So it's not a pill that one can take. <laughs> it requires that effort piece. And um, yeah. So I love the way that you use the word investigate because um, there's even just the ability and the willingness to ask questions, I think is an important skill. That, and it's probably a learned skill for many of us, you know, in the sense of not maybe growing up in a, family or religion, religious context that allowed that very much. Mm -hmm. But it seems really important because, um, you know, listening to what came up in my mind was a memory of the time that uh, Joseph Goldstein and I traveled to South Africa to teach. Mm -hmm. And it was during the apartheid era. Oh, wow. So we actually saw it, you know, very directly. And it was completely strange, you know, in our eyes. But um, somebody mentioned that, uh, I think it was Japanese people because it was a whole cadre of Japanese tourists and business people, you know, who were there working. Mm -hmm. um, they were honorary whites. Wow. You think, well, how's that happen? You know, like wow. it's biologically, that makes no sense, does it? But none of it mm -hmm. makes sense. It's that a construct. Sense. It's a system that yeah. got manufactured, got created to someone's satisfaction, you know, or um, advancement, they think. Yeah. And, and so, uh, to be able to step back and say, you know, this thing which I took as inevitable or intrinsic to yeah. life, look at that, it's totally made up, you know? It's totally made up. And that's where the practice is for me, you know. And when I first realized this, I'd be super in my head in those moments. And I'm sure there are people that are listening and watching and be like, well, yes, but, you know, in those moments where I meet, when I'm made to feel small because of my color or my gender or whatever else. Uh, whatever marginalized identity is like for right now, so many LGBTQ people, particularly trans people in our country um, and the world even. And for me, that's where the power of these prison tools is so important because we don't need the external world to tell us that we are, you know, we are equal and we are just as we are, not better or worse, you know, and we can really celebrate that. And that is a type of, you know, fierce courage and compassion that one can have for oneself. And that requires practice. Because sometimes even our mind succumbs to those narratives. And we feel like, oh, if only I were this or that, if only I were white, then it would just my world wouldn't be that. And this is where, you know, we meet our own suffering and have the self-compassion to really move through that. Um, and that's the work of consciousness shift, really, right? This is, and for me, the, the more I do this work around breaking bias, again, not something I ever intended to do <laughs> as like an introverted you know, immigrant. <laughs> uh, it was like a big nerd, science nerd. And yet, here I am. <laughs> it's great. Could you go over the PRISM uh, acronym again? Yes, absolutely. So I'll start the way it's supposed to be. It actually starts with mindfulness. So PRISM, M for mindfulness. And mindfulness is really, I mean, as you know, and everyone else here knows that it's really this act of noticing. And when it comes to bias, really noticing our thoughts, what's happening in our minds. Um, so it's really bringing intimacy to that. And then we kind of move into a more directed mindfulness practice, which is known as stereotype replacement. So when we notice negative stereotypes in particular, and there are no stereotypes that are positive, even the model minority myth is a negative stereotype because it prevents people from seeing people for who they are. There's this whole idea that, oh, well, they can benefit from how people... No, no, it's not good or bad because we're not seeing people for who they are. Stereotypes are just negative. Um, but then we replace them with counter-positive examples. So in the lab, for example, they would you know, show images of Dr. King or think of Dr. King. But it doesn't have to be someone who's like bigger than the world. It could just be our friend, you know, our black friend or our trans sister or whomever, right? When these stereotypes arise, because we've learned these habits, these stereotypes through our conditioning. 
And then we move to individuation, which is really kind of, again, it's, it's kind of a bridge between the head and the heart practices because it's about curiosity. You know, what you said, this ability to ask questions. So individuation is really then individuating with people as we are with them, not the ideas of them. So if I'm with Sharon, I'm with Sharon, not who I think meditation teachers are supposed to be, right? Because um, behind all the titles, she's also this human being. Um, and then we move to pro-social behaviors, which are, you know, I would say some of the Brahma Vihara practices, but particularly practices of compassion, kindness, joy, and forgiveness. Those are the four that I think are very paramount. Um, then lastly, moving to perspective taking, which is about imagination. So it's really about breaking all the boxes altogether and being able to imagine what it's like to be in someone else's shoes. Not how I would want to be in their shoes, but given the causes and conditions of their life, what it's like to be in their shoes, which is a really radical way of doing things. And it's something the entertainment industry does all the time. This is what great actors do all the time. So I'm like, wait, we're all doing this all the time anyway, because all of us are acting in theater in some shape or form. Mm -hmm. We have this capacity, but again, it's really mindfulness from the bottom up that weaves it together. And even for the heart practices, you know, compassion and kindness and love, mindfulness is really important because it brings our attention, it directs our attention. So um, it's kind of, you know, the power of mindfulness can't be understated, but then compassion is kind of the really healing bomb that enables transformation. So great. Thank you for your great work, really. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You're such a big part of it. <laughs> thank you. So before we end our time together, would you lead us in a short practice so we can just celebrate it further? Yes, absolutely. So I would love to share this practice. that actually, this is something I came up with for our practice today as I was prepping for um, this session. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to invite everyone to just come to a comfortable seated position wherever you are. Um, you could rest your feet on the ground below you, your hands on your lap or on your knees. And if it's comfortable, bring your eyes to a gentle close. Or place your gaze at a stationary point in front of you. For the first few moments, just letting go of any thoughts, any ideas, any memories, and just returning inwards, feeling that sense of release and surrender in the body, using your awareness, this power of attention to let go of any tension, any contraction that may be present. In any part of the body, from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, perhaps your jaw, your tongue, let go, your shoulders, your hands. Let go. And as you feel this process of surrendering, letting go, offer peace, offer kindness to these parts of yourself. Parts of your face, your eyes, your nose, your chin, peace, your chest, your arms, your belly, peace. your legs, 
and all parts of your being peace, really offering peace as a practice. As you let go and take that extra step of offering peace. And if the mind gets distracted, notice what it's doing. Perhaps there's thinking, planning, or even judging. That's okay. There's judgment there. Judgment of this practice, of me, of yourself. We make that the object of our attention and offer that peace, bringing vigor, bringing vitality to this peace offer within. Peace, peace, with vigor. It's known as virya in the Pali, which is really about effort, using mindfulness to bring that vigor. this practice of offering peace and kindness. Now extending that kindness to all parts of your body. Extending that peace to all parts of your body, all parts of who you were in the past. Peace to every part of you that is yet to come, peace. To every memory and every thought, every success, every failure, peace. Just Letting go in the peace of every part of your experience. And then slowly extending this peace to everyone, everything, every being. in all directions, without conditions, without exceptions, peace. This feeling of oneness, interconnection, interdependence really stems from the magic word love. And this is a practice of love, of letting go, offering peace, bringing vigor, and extending it to every part and everyone, everywhere, without exception. So let's just rest in this experience of love for a few moments. I'll be quiet for a few moments.
May all beings everywhere be free from suffering and all the causes of suffering. And after your next exhale, you can bring your chin to your chest. And if your eyes were closed, you can open them and slowly come back to our space together. So welcome back, everyone. And thank you so much for your practice. Thank you so much. Really, it's very beautiful. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> it's, great. it's great to see you. And it's Bye. such a pleasure to be in conversation with you and learn you know i learn so much all the time it's great so to learn more about anu's work visit be more with anu it's b-e-m-o-r-e-w-i-t-h-a-n-u.com thank you thank you thank you hey folks thanks for listening To learn more about Sharon's many different offerings, her courses, virtual classes, or to get a copy of Real Life, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Real Life series on the Meta Hour podcast, brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, And may you live with ease.